0: In the summer of 415 BC, the Athenians invaded Sicily with an expeditionary force that became, in Thucydides' description, not less famous for its wonderful boldness and for the splendor of its appearance than for its overwhelming strength as compared with the peoples against whom it was directed, and for the fact that this was the longest passage from home hitherto attempted, and the most ambitious in its objectives considering the resources of those who undertook it. Conceived by the young, ambitious, and daring Alcibiades, it soon fell to the old, cautious, superstitious general Nicias to lead the Athenian forces against the great Sicilian democracy of Syracuse. Two years later, the expedition had ended in disaster. They were, in Thucydides' phrase, destroyed with a complete destruction. Their magnificent fleet destroyed, the young men who had grown up during the peace of Nicias, who had gone to war with such high hopes and ambitions, almost all of them cut down by the enemy in Sicily, starved to death or sold into slavery. As Thucydides notes at the beginning of Book 8 of his history, waves of disbelief, anger, fear, and despair swept over the Athenians when they heard the news they saw that the destruction of their massive fleet and army in Sicily would encourage their subject states to revolt and their enemies to press the advantage back in Greece. But, true to their character, to be born into the world never to rest and never to give rest to others, the Athenians rebounded quickly. As Thucydides writes, Nevertheless, with such means as they had, it was determined to resist to the last and to provide timber and money and to equip a fleet fleet as best they could, to take steps to secure their confederates, and above all, Euboea, to reform things in the city upon a more economical footing, and to elect a board of elders to advise upon the state of affairs as occasion should arise. In short, as is the way of democracy, in the panic of the moment they were ready to be as prudent as possible, these resolves were carried into effect at once. Two years later, in 411 BC, the great poet Aristophanes performed his latest comedy, Lysistrata, at Athens, during its great religious and cultural festival in honor of the god Dionysus. The war is going badly, and accordingly, political tensions within Athens are running high. In several of his earlier plays, Aristophanes had ridiculed the pro-war faction in Athens, including the demagogue Cleon celebrated the joys of domestic and rural living, and imagined the miraculous conditions that would be required to achieve and enjoy peace again. The Lysistrata is another one of these so-called peace plays. But with the Spartans fortified at Decoleia, the Athenian Empire on the brink of collapse, and the city of Athens itself at risk of descending into civil war, Aristophanes cannot use his comedy to directly accuse one villain or one faction within the city, and still remain a responsible citizen of Athens. So, what's a comic poet to do? After all, as we've already seen this semester, Aristophanes the comic poet is not merely a comedian. Not merely a comedian, at least if a comedian is merely someone who tells jokes or writes ridiculous scenarios in order to amuse us. Aristophanes is far more than this. As a comic poet, he has a distinct vocation, which certainly includes but is not limited to humor. In The Clouds, Aristophanes appears as the defender of the city of Athens against an intellectual and moral threat, the new scientific and sophistical movements embodied by the middle aged Socrates. In The Clouds, the poet Aristophanes accused the philosopher Socrates of atheism and injustice, showing us that by teaching natural science and sophistry without regard for piety and justice, Socrates has corrupted the youth and weakened the city as a whole. Aristophanes, in effect, blames the vices of Athenian culture at the time, the overweening ambition of the new Athenian empire, the sophisticated contempt for the traditional understanding of justice and the gods that is expressed by the Athenian envoys in the Melian Dialogue on Socrates the philosopher, Socrates the scientist and sophist. Perhaps he was also warning Socrates that if he doesn't change his ways, he will come to a bad end, suffering at the hands of the young men whom he has taught to be unjust and impious, or at least suffering at the hands of their angry fathers. We will be wrestling with this accusation against Socrates for the rest of the semester as we turn to Plato's Republic, which, I will suggest, should be read as, among other things, an extended defense against Aristophanes' accusation. For now, let's think about how Aristophanes' vocation as a comic poet takes shape in the Lysistrata. Let me suggest that we think about his vocation in two broad ways. First, I think here he reprises the role that he played in the clouds as defender of Athens in and through this comedy, the Lysistrata. The question remains against what or against whom is Aristophanes defending the city? Secondly, I will be suggesting that Aristophanes in Lysistrata is a kind of apocalyptic poet. I'll explain what I mean by apocalyptic near the end of this lecture. For now, let's note a chief difference between this play and Aristophanes' other plays. In The Clouds, Aristophanes singles out Socrates, a real-life historical person who is almost certainly sitting right there in the audience, and makes him the center of his drama the simultaneous object of ridicule and accusation. In some of his other piece plays, for example, The Knights, Aristophanes had put contemporary political leaders, including Cleon, Nicias, and Demosthenes, on stage to ridicule them and to warn his fellow Athenians about their vices and follies. But Aristophanes is more circumspect here in the Lysistrata. As I mentioned, he needs to be indirect here, Given the especially tense political atmosphere and dangerous military situation of the time. Moreover, he chooses to cast his characters in the way that he does because the Lysistrata is, at the end, a play about unity, about the restoration of unity. The reunion of wives and husbands separated by military service, the reunion of the parts of the city at odds with each other ever since Pericles brought the rural re- residents of Attica in behind the walls of Athens and told the citizens that they need to focus on their navy while allowing the Spartans to pillage their countryside. And even the reunion of the cities themselves, Athens and Sparta and the others, whose unity in defiance of Xerxes during the Persian Wars had been replaced by a terrible disunion, the greatest motion that had ever stirred the Hellenic world, not against a common enemy, but against one another. Aristophanes, for the most part, avoids his usual in-your-face depiction of actual particular Athenians on the stage because, while he does need to ridicule his fellow citizens for their own good, he knows that he cannot do so in his usual manner. So what does he do? First, he places the women of Athens at the center of his, his play as the comic heroines. Athenian women were traditionally excluded from public life and, dis- pu- and political decision making. They were in charge of the management of the household, and not only did they not have any say in matters of state, they did not, for the most part, even appear in public except on special festival days and female-only religious celebrations. From the opening lines of the play, Aristophanes makes sure that the women embody all the stereotypes that an Athenian man would believe about women. At least. Almost all of the women in the play embody these stereotypes. We'll have to think about the character of Lysistrata and what sets her apart from her fellows. Her name, by the way, Lysistrata, means disbander of armies, the one who disbands or uh, loosens armies. As for her character, let me pose a few questions now, uh, which you might take up in our discussion. Here are my questions. Is Lysistrata subject to the same stereotypical vices as the other women in the play? Is she ever the object of laughter? Do we ever find ourselves laughing at anything that she does or anything that happens to her? Or on the contrary, is she actually a very serious character, even a virtuous character, who's surrounded by comic men and women with low characters? Indeed, not just surrounded by... Lysistrata herself seems to be orchestrating the entire action of the play, even ensuring that it is brought to its amazing conclusion. A final question. Consider the archetypes of three great Greek goddesses, Aphrodite, Artemis, and Athena. How do the women of the play embody one or another of these goddesses? Which goddess or goddesses must the women of Athens imitate in order for Lysistrata's plan to succeed? Aphrodite? Artemis? Athena? What about Lysistrata herself? Which goddess is she most like? In any case, the men in Aristophanes' audience can laugh at the women on stage, or, more precisely, they can laugh at their fellow men who are on stage pretending to be women, which makes certain scenes in the play all the more hilarious, I think. In any case, the women, the female characters are portrayed as overly fond of drinking wine, sleeping in, eating delicacies, getting dressed up, and making love. And the men in the audience can laugh at themselves, insofar as they are represented by the male characters on the stage. Everyone can relax and enjoy the humor, in no small part because it is generic. It is about women and men, not about these women or those men. And it does include some truly ridiculous scenarios, as with when one woman who trot, who's tired of uh, Lysistra's plot to withhold sex from their husbands, she tries to sneak out of the Acropolis on the pretext that she's about to give birth, only to be discovered as having stuffed a helmet under her robes. right? Or later, when the other another woman, Myronae, her husband, Canasius, begs Myronae to come out of the Acropolis and do her wifely duty with him. And so Mirone excites him and tortures him with endless delays and excuses that, you know, first she has to go fetch a mattress, uh, then a blanket, uh, then a pillow, maybe some perfume, and so on and so forth. And he is, uh, to say the least, impatient. But for all the humor, there is a looming crisis, a crisis that provokes Aristophanes to write the play, a crisis that must be resolved by the play. Here we need to think about how Athens is disordered by the war that they have been con- that that they've been fighting in all these years. How the war has corrupted Athens. How the good life, the happy life, the ordinary life of Athens has decayed during and because of this war. And we need to think about how Aristophanes is serving as the defender of Athens. To repeat an earlier question, if Aristophanes is defending Athens, then against what? Or against whom is he defending the city? Let me build on this question a little bit. If he is not defending Athens against a particular villain here, as he did against the scientist and sophist Socrates in the clouds and against the demagogue Cleon in the knights, then against whom is he defending it? Or is he rather showing us something about what's within each of us? Is he defending Athens not against a particular roguish character or particular foolish policy, but instead against some force in human nature that has manifested itself in in the Athenian Empire at this time in in a dangerous way. Is he defending Athens against a perversion of Eros, or perhaps against a perversion of the political life? Let me make a few more suggestions. Athens at the beginning of the Lysistrata is disordered. The city as a whole And as a result, its parts, the households within it, the marriages and families, are disordered. Or is it the other way around? The disorder of the city, the hubris and ambition of Athenian politicians to convert their humble polis into an overweening empire, this has taken the husbands from their wives and has left the young women of the city with no young men to marry. But the restoration of the good order of the city, and also the restoration of the good order of the household comes about in this comedy through an even further disordering. Here we can see the comic logic of Aristophanes: the city is reordered through disorder. the political and familial orders that have become so confused that have, that only a revolution in the sexes can restore it to its health. But notably, the revolutionary disordering that occurs in the comedy, is done for the sake of the restoration of the normal order. The Lysistrata is sometimes interpreted today as a pacifistic or a feminist play, and it certainly celebrates the goods of peace over the deprivations of war, and it certainly gives women their due, much more so than they were given in Athens at the time, especially that most remarkable woman, the goddess-like Lysistrata herself. But Athens, at the end of the Lysistrata, is to return to its normal, pre-war state of affairs. Husbands and wives and their households together, the Greek cities at peace with each other, at least for now. In closing, I'd like to invoke two scholars who can shed some further light on the Lysistrata in somewhat different ways. The first is going to address the elephant in the room, which I've so far hardly mentioned at all, which is to say the indecency of the play. The second scholar will allow me to explain what I mean when I said earlier that Aristophanes is an apocalyptic poet. First, then, a quote from the political philosopher Leo Strauss, who wrote a book called Socrates and Aristophanes. Strauss writes there that the Lysistrata is, quote, at the same time the most indecent and the most moral, most harmless, or at least revolutionary, of Aristophanes' plays. Perhaps this fact accounts for its singular popularity. Let me read that quote one more time. The Lysistrata is, at the same time, the most indecent and the most moral, the most harmless or the least revolutionary of Aristophanes' plays. Perhaps this fact accounts for its singular popularity. The play, Strauss writes, is most indecent because it takes what should be most private, that is, human sexuality and the sexual relationship between husband and wife, and makes it public, parades it in all its facets before the eyes of the audience. But at the same time, the play is also most moral in the sense of being the most harmless or least revolutionary. The goal of Lysistrata's outrageous, apparently revolutionary plot conspiring with all the women of Greece to withhold themselves from their husbands and, separately, seizing the Acropolis of Athens where the treasury is kept so that the men can't keep paying for more ships to keep fighting in this war. The goal of all this is, as I already mentioned, the restoration of marital and political harmony. Second, I'd like to draw from the great literary critic Louise Cowan, Specifically, her essay in The Terrain of Comedy, which is called Aristophanes' Comic Apocalypse. Cowan reads the topsy-turvy comedies of Aristophanes as proto-Christian, for the greatest and truest comedy of all is a story of the world redeemed by Christ. Just as there will be a new heaven and a new earth, so also, in Aristophanes' plays, do we get a glimpse of what awaits us in heaven. Except it is not in a new heaven and a new earth, but in what Cowan calls the transformed actual city, Athens redeemed. And, true to form, Aristophanes uses very earthy, very bodily images to show it to us. Cowan notes that each of Aristophanes' peace plays, the Acharnians, the peace, and Elyssistrada itself, each of these piece plays has its own dominant metaphor for the ecstasy of blessedness. In the Acarnians it is wine. In the peace, it is a banquet of food. And in the Lysistrata, it is sex. And specifically, it is sex within marriage. Although several perversions of sex, rape, infidelity, homosexuality, and masturbation, are all mentioned throughout the Lysistrata, none is ever seriously con- entertained by its characters As a course of action for the men or women to overcome the comic conclusion of reunion with one another, to avoid that comic conclusion. In any case, sex within marriage in the Lysistrata is Aristophanes' metaphor for the ecstasy of blessedness. Its restoration corresponds not just with peace in the ordinary sense, the cessation of the war, but with what Cowan calls a transformed spiritual condition. Cowan writes that Aristophanes in the Lysistrata, quote, shows how peace may be restored to the political life of an entire city and, in fact, all of Greece. And the way is through sex, lovemaking between husband and wife, within the family, in a harmonious and ordered city. The grossly exaggerated sexual language and sexual gesture of the Lysistrata become the carrier for love between husband and wife, the inner life of desire, the sacredness of the home, the harmony and order of the city, and finally, even the outreaching agape by which one loves one's enemies. Agape, the Greek term for charity, caritas. As Cowan notes elsewhere in this essay, an apocalypse in its root sense is an uncovering, a disclosure, a revelation of final things, not so much at the end of time as outside of time. Cowan speaking about the etymology of the word apocalypse. The final book of the New Testament, which we normally call Revelation or the Revelation of John, is titled in Greek, Apocalypse. An apocalypse is an unveiling or a revelation, a laying bare of what is fundamental or true. How then is Aristophanes an apocalyptic poet? Cowan has suggested that he provides us with a kind of pagan comic foretaste of paradise what else does he reveal? What does he reveal to us about the good life that may be hidden otherwise, without uh, his kind of comic fantasy there to, to expose it? What does he reveal to us about the purpose of marriage, of the household of the city? What does he reveal to us about the nature and purpose of Eros? I think that's a good place to stop. Although the Lysistrata is much more concerned with rosy lips and cheeks than with the marriage of true minds, Nevertheless, let's actually conclude with Shakespeare's sonnet 116. Let me not, to the marriage of true minds, admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved.